Good evening, and welcome to the Hellraiser Handlebar. I am one of your hosts, Bradford T. Wolf, and this is my other host, Claude Redgraves. And we are here to discuss horror movies. Today's topic, Terror for the Timid. We always get some of our friends who love watching movies, but they don't quite have an affinity to horror movies, be it that perhaps they don't like the blood and gore, perhaps they don't like the jump scares that occur in the movies. Maybe horror is an acquired taste, perhaps? What would you think, Mr. Redgraves? It is an acquired taste, like a fine scotch. You definitely build up the ability to appreciate the subtle notes behind the tension sting over time as one consumes more horror, or at least I have. I have to agree with you. I think the appeal to me, and I've heard some theories about it before, why people watch horror movies, it's because it's a place where you can get all of those fight or flight responses where you can be put into that danger, but you know that it's a movie, so you're relatively safe. You get that adrenaline rush without actually having to get chased by an axe-wielding maniac. Oh, indeed. It's good to get a flex of the feelings in every now and then. A good comedy giving you a deep belly laugh or a drama giving you a, a melancholic sadness horror raises the heart rate and gives you an appreciation for life in the fear, I think. But still, that's not for everybody. And there are definitely people who perhaps don't handle jump scares very well, or are too bothered by blood and gore, or perhaps certain transgressive topics that are often pivotal, or at least ubiquitous in horror films can be a turnoff for some viewers, but like a fine cuisine, there are so many different flavors of horror, so many different dishes of subtle nuance and mixing of spices and elements that there is a horror out there for everyone. You just need to find the right one. I guess on a scale of 1 to 10, you can figure out how scary a movie is, how terrifying a movie is from 1 to all the way up to 10. Some people can handle the 1s and 2s. Some people can go, hey, let's punch this up to 11. So it just depends on your tolerance of getting scared, your tolerance of being frightened. So this episode, we are going to be chatting about what movies can our quote-unquote timid friends watch that are still horror, but not quite as horrific as, say, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, indeed. That's a good topic. Torgo, would you be so kind? Good evening. What can I get you tonight? Some of the good stuff. Yes, uh, the Lefroy, please. Coming right up. Here you go, Mr. Redgraves. Nice to see you gents again. Oh, Cassandra, you are a lifesaver. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, I am going to start drinking something in the theme of our terror for the timid. I am just going to be drinking a soda pop, which is a Sprecher raspberry soda pop. I like it because there's an Arctic wolf on the label. But 
Of course, you know, we are at the bar, so I've got a little bit of rum in that. So thank you, Torgo, for the wonderful <laughs> mixed drink. You're welcome, Mr. Wolf. It's a little bit timid, but mm. not too crazy. Kind of like the movies that we are recommending for you this episode. Oh, that is a delightful way to start. By the way, let me ask you, Cassandra. All right, what would you like to know? Do you like being scared? Do you like having that fear of being scared? Or do you like the gory movies? I always just wondered about that about you. Oh, I don't know if I go for those really scary ones much. I mean, not unless it gives me an excuse to jump into the arms of the crumpet next to me, right? No, the gory ones are too, you know, icky, aren't they? Me, I like the ones with some comedy in them. You know, take the edge off the scare a bit. Keep me from having those nightmares. Or looking too airy-fairy to my date. <laughs> Good answer. I'm not terribly surprised, actually, but I guess neither are you, typically. No, yeah. no. If you work in a bar like this, you kind of have to be used to the atmosphere. <laughs> We've talked about this topic a few times where you've got horror-adjacent films. Sometimes you've got your horror romance, your horror action, your horror comedies. So I'm going to start with a little bit of horror comedy. One of my favorite ones that I would recommend to people, especially some of my friends who do not like being scared, but yet it is a horror movie, is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Mm, that is a delightful film. That one was a movie about how you've got a bunch of what, teenagers, college-age kids? Uh, college kids. Young people who go to the cabin in the woods of Tucker and Dale, obviously these really scary hillbillies that might be up to murdering these young people. But in a turn of events, you find out that Tucker and Dale just want to live their life, and it's the college kids who are the ones that are the aggressors, and that kind of turns that movie on its edge and the comedy ensues from that one. There isn't anything super duper gory, but... Oh, yes, there is. A kid dives headfirst into a wood chipper. There's a lot of blood. <laughs> now, it's funny, and it's played for laughs, but we'll put a gore warning on that one. If you're averse to seeing a lot of blood, maybe not this movie for you. It's one of those scenes where, surprisingly, even though it sounds horrific, it is one of the funniest scenes in the movie. It's like when oh, it is. people describe in the movie Pulp Fiction how the guy gets his head blown off in the car, and that was funny. It's kind of in that same sort of dark humor as that. Maybe it's a spoiler, maybe it's not, but yeah, someone gets thrown into a wood chipper, or actually jumps into a wood chipper indeed now i would say it's a bit mainstream and i'm sure everyone's heard of it but if you want something in you know, a horror comedy that is pretty much non-existent on gore ghostbusters is always a classic oh definitely we're wasting our listeners time talking about ghostbusters if you haven't seen it what are you waiting for Exactly. <laughs> we had talked about this in a previous episode where does it make it a horror movie if you've got monsters in it? If, a creature feature, I guess, is what they used to call them, where if they have ghosts, if they have a monster in it. But uh, like we've talked about with our horror adjacent romance with The Shape of Water, there is a monster in it. And so it was classified as a horror movie. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything horrific in that one. So... 
that would be another recommendation for our timid terror watchers. Now, I was going to say, while I don't consider Ghostbusters to be a ghost story because the haunting element of it is kind of minimal. Yeah. It does have a lot of supernatural things going on in it and the building tension. It's actually more of a Lovecraftian tale in that it deals with an eldritch abomination beyond human comprehension. I had to get that out there. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Shape of Water is horror adjacent. Shape of Water uh, doesn't have much of a horror tension to it though i i think right it was very much the monster had not that much of an impact in the story other than i'm falling in love with a sea monster yeah yeah i didn't feel like it was scary more in common really with oh god dare i say romeo and juliet because they Mm -hmm. are star-crossed lovers but Aquaman, you cannot marry a woman without gills. You're from two different worlds. <laughs> well, on that same vein, pardon the pun, on that same vein, another <sighs> movie that was essentially based on Romeo and Juliet is the zombie romance Warm Bodies. Oh. That came out just about right when the Twilight series had finished. I never watched it because I thought, oh, this is just appealing to the Twilight fans, all the young adults who want to see their horror. And surprisingly, it was a solid movie. Very, very much a Romeo and Juliet story, but with Undead. That one isn't really gory. There's some suspense in it, but for my friends who don't like the gore, who don't like a lot of jump scares, that one was a good movie to watch. Warm Bodies. Okay, well, if we're going to put Warm Bodies in there... Then we have to talk about my favorite paranormal romance, Only Lovers Left Alive, Mm -hmm. which is a vampire movie about two estranged undead vampiric lovers who wrestle with the ennui of eternal life and the very real parallels of regular mortal depression as they reconnect and remember why they fell in love to begin with. It has some horror elements, but overall more of a romance film, but highly worth the watch. Oh, definitely, with Tilda Swinton. Very good actress. Mm -hmm. And was it uh, Tom Hiddleston? Oh, yeah. I think it was Tom Hiddleston. Torgo, was it Tom Hiddleston? Why, yes, Mr. Redgraves. It was Tom Hiddleston in the 2013 film Only Lovers Left Alive. Ah, okay. Yeah, can you imagine that, though? If you've got depression as a mortal... But then now you've got eternal depression as a vampire. That would totally suck. No pun intended. Or maybe pun intended. Ba-bump-bump. You're terrible. I know. Aren't I, though? In a similar vein. Ha-ha. Wait a minute. I just (laughs) stole the pun you just used. That doesn't work. There is, of course, Interview with a Vampire. Oh, I thought you were going to go with What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, that's... What we do in the shadows is not horror, though. It's paranormal comedy. There isn't any horror tension in what we do. However, Interview with a Vampire has more of like a a little bit of a thriller element because it's kind of a vampire lifetime movie because Louis is stuck in a relationship with his abusive sire, Lestat. And Lestat is pretty abusive in the film, and certainly in the book as well. So, like, that's a whole other thing. And some wonderful performances from many of the actors in that movie. Oh, indeed. That's the film that has convinced me that Tom Cruise really is a vampire, 
and having just seen him in Top Gun Maverick, he is clearly immortal. So, just saying. Oh, boys, that Tom Cruise is still so dreamy. <sighs> it's been 30 years, and Maverick has just gained just a little bit of a punch in the cheeks. That's that's it. That's it. He's put on a little bit of weight, I guess. That's all he's got to show for it. The rat bastard. <laughs> While I'm on a vampire tirade, there is, of course, Shadow of the Vampire. Oh, yeah. Which is more in line with a proper horror, but it's not heavy on blood. It's not heavy on transgressive themes. It's very light on jump scares it's more of the slowly building psychological terror that takes place within the film crew filming the famous unauthorized adaptation of dracula called nosferatu filmed by hw murnau wherein the cast and crew are slowly realizing as one by one they're being picked off usually off camera that the creepy method actor who plays the undead Count Orlock really is a vampire. <laughs> well, it's, it's an amazing performance from Willem Dafoe, who also hasn't aged since that film was made. You know, you are right. Maybe, maybe Willem Dafoe also <laughs> is a vampire. Perhaps we should check into the movie industry to see if they have an association or some kind of vampires who work in the movies. Well, it's either that or Death Becomes Her actually is real. Which also brings us to another movie. Good segue, sir. <laughs> You're welcome. And that movie is about how we've got an aging actress who goes and finds an underground group that stays eternally young by taking a magic potion. They can't be killed but one of them gets shot, one of them gets their neck twisted up, but yet they are still alive. It's almost like Deadpool, right? They can still stay alive even though they get injured. Except that they do not heal. Yes. So it requires immense amounts of reconstructive work to put back the damage they incur. Towards the end of the movie, they even talk about how that they need to get some Bondo to fill up some of their cracks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's what you'd use. If it works on a car, then you might as well. The only thing is not flexible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that movie, one that came to mind would be Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. That one is an action movie with Michael J. Fox. It might be a little bit horrific for younger viewers, but there's a lot of scary ghosts. It's still not super duper scary. Mm -hmm. That kind of treads a line with being too scary or not scary. It's Michael J. Fox, so it can't be tremendously horrific. If you're looking for one to enjoy with the young ones, hard to go wrong with Hocus Pocus. That one is intended to be lightly comedic, more so a scary for kids. Right. And it's handled with beautiful respect by the entire cast. No one oh, yeah. is turning in a phoned-in performance, whether it be from Bette Midler or... Sarah Jessica Parker. Yes, Sarah Jessica Parker and... Uh, Torgo, help me out. Kathy Najini. How could you forget her? Don't make me run amok. 
Thank you, Cassandra. Oh, thank you. Whether it be from them or even our old pal Doug Jones, the king of appearing under heavy makeup, <laughs> who pops out of a grave and has only one speaking line in the entire film. It's all handled with great reverence and with an air of building a creepiness that isn't overpowering. Now, one thing that we have not talked about with scary movies are more classic movies, the older movies, maybe some of the Hammer Studio movies, maybe some of the Roger Corman, Vincent Price movies. With today's standards, those are pretty tame, especially the Roger Corman movies, such as The Raven, The Pit and the Pendulum, Fall of the House of Usher, whereas those are your gothic horror stories and movies. But by today's standards, they are by no means scary. A Mask of the Red Death was another one also. So any of those older ones, like classic Vincent Price movies, those are pretty safe to watch for people who aren't quite as attuned to horror movies as we are. Oh, indeed. And some of those Vincent Price ones, Vincent has gotten a bit of a bad rap on our discussions, but there are ones that are just really, really delightful, like uh, The Last Man on Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, we mentioned the fall of the House of Usher is actually handled very, very well. And f- it has that oppressive Gothic atmosphere that the book conveys marvelously. The Raven is good, but in entirely different ways because it diverges almost comically far from the source material. But it's still a fantastic film. Although Pit and the Pendulum, oh boy. That one will still twist you up just a little bit. I actually saw the remake of that one. I think it was in the 1990s, perhaps. It did have the actor who played Bishop in Aliens. The Pit and the Pendulum was reimagined in 1991. It starred Lance Hendrickson from Aliens and Jeffrey Combs from The Reanimator. It was an okay production i actually preferred the vincent price one to the remake of it vincent was a great actor if he had a director pulling the performance one of the other movies that we had discussed at other episodes was crimson peak that one is not that scary it's got a lot of tension but there isn't anything that really jumps out at you. There aren't a whole lot of bloody or gory scenes. So it is kind of a neo-gothic style of the movie. Okay, yes, neo-gothic. But I'm sorry, I've, I've got to disagree with you again because the ghosts in Crimson Peak are actually quite terrifying. There's some of the, I personally think, some of the scariest ghosts rendered in film. I think that that could be intimidating for some viewers well let's let's stick a little trigger warning on that uh, as we just did so on a scale from one to ten maybe that one a six or a seven it's not like take for instance dave made a maze yes that has horror tension with absolutely no blood and gore as i recall there was none there was a scene where there should have been blood but instead we got confetti and ribbons yes that one was more psychological terror i think Psychological terror, which could be a little bit easier to approach without the other trappings of horror bundled in with it, because it's not dark and it's not bloody. But ultimately, Dave made a maze, and this was finally confirmed in a behind-the-scenes discussion with the director. It was literally an attempt to bring House of Leaves to film. 
that is audacious. That is so incredibly audacious. I mean, the House of Leaves, as it stands, couldn't be made into a film. You've read the book, so how would you rate Dave Maida Mays compared to the book? How well did they succeed in getting the vibe from the book? They got as close as anyone's ever going to get. The only way that you could really translate House of Leaves to another medium would be... It wouldn't be a film. It would be an immersive experience where you would have to lock someone in an actual labyrinth and have them wander through it periodically finding rooms that had bizarre, disjointed, unsettling imagery on loop. That's really the only way that I think you could bend someone's mind in the same way that House of Leaves does. Dave made a maze does a good job of presenting similar tensions to the book, but it does it with some comedy rather than the uh, pervasive dread and indefinable sense of ah, je ne sais quoi, uh, that uh, (laughs) undefinable sense of dread and discomfort that one could really only get from staying up all night reading creepy pastas. All right, fair enough. <laughs> How's that for a review? We had talked about Hocus Pocus earlier, and that made me think about how there are some movies that are geared towards our younger audiences, which still would be fine to watch for our older audiences. Too, oh, yes. such as I know we talked about Death Becomes Her. Well, I could, that would, might be for an older crowd, but like yeah. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice would be one that anyone can watch. I mean, kids can watch Beetlejuice as well. Uh oh, Mr. Wolf, you said that guy's name three times. Nope, I'm going in the kitchen before that so called bio exorcist shows up. Another one that I was thinking of too would be Little Shop of Horrors. If you turn it into a musical, it's not really that frightening. I actually prefer the musical version. How about Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark? Recently got a film adaptation. Yep, I was just going to say that one, too. Yep, yep. And The Monster Squad. That's where we find out that Wolfman has nards. That's true, he does. Yep. (laughs) Also, Tim Burton, Nightmare Before Christmas. I would say that's pretty oh, it horrific. it does have some good scares. It does. Yeah. It does have yeah, some good scares in it. Yeah. That's one that pretty much anyone can watch without being too terrified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you lump in the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Because there really isn't anything <laughs> scary in that. Well, first of all, not in the section where we're addressing it to young Watchers. No, no, not at all. Um, no, <laughs> no. Instead, if I was going to say something for younger viewers, other than scary stories, I might talk about the Fear Street trilogy, which premiered on Netflix last winter, I believe. That one, I think, might be a bit too gory for people. Well, it's teens. It's teens. Okay, well, teens, yeah. Just as a spoiler, there's a lot of blood in some of those movies. That's an appropriate warning for that. There is a lot of blood yeah. in Fear Street. But overall, it is geared for a teen audience, and adults like it too. Yeah. How about The Mummy, 1999? Oh, that is a good one. So again, we're back to Creature Features, where there isn't anything too tremendously scary, but it does have a classic monster to it. Well, and Emotep is kind of scary in the film. He relentlessly stalks the protagonists. He is 
a bit of a Michael Myers figure. Yeah. <laughs> Groovy, baby. Oh, uh, behave. No, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> he is a bit of a, a Michael Myers, you know, the shape kind of figure for a lot of the right. film. Yeah. With the reboot of The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, I always thought that it's easy to escape The Mummy from the old movies, the old classic movies. I tell mm-hmm. people, well, you know how to escape The Mummy? Just walk briskly. Because they always shamble, kind of like zombies in earlier movies. To get away from them walk fast because they just sit there and limp and shamble but then what we know from dawn of dead remakes and 48 days later with also the new mummy it's like oh shoot these guys can run now Uh uh-oh i better work on my cardio (laughs) oh indeed well you know the thing about the mummy was prior to karloff's mummy you couldn't outrun the mummy's curse there are some people yeah. who believe that the Titanic sank because of a mummy's curse. Ooh, now that would be a movie I'd watch. That's a subject for a much longer, completely different discussion. Nice. Oh, buddy, have I got some good mummy stories. We'll, we'll, we'll come <laughs> back to that one later. Going with some horror-adjacent movies, I do have a list of some of those. Now, horror-adjacent meaning horror-slash-comedy movies. One of them would be your scary movie franchise by the Wayans Brothers or whoever picked it up afterwards. After Wayans Brothers, David Zucker of Airplane and Naked Gun took over directing Scary Movie 3 and 4. Not actually that scary. Scary Movie, Scary Movie 2. Those probably wouldn't be for kids because they are kind of dirty and I believe they were rated R, but they are very funny. Some of the parodies in those are a little bit past their prime just because, geez, that's been like 30 years ago. Yeah, not everything in those films aged well. Yeah, Shaun of the Dead's also a good horror comedy. Oh yeah, and Shaun has legitimate scare in it. The zombies are in fact quite yeah. scary in Shaun of yeah. the Dead. But the comedy kind kind of offsets that yep right right it, it's like that uh that note of sweet to offset the bitter it works it allows them to be scary without building overpowering dread in the audience right there's another movie and i think it was australian called little monsters and be careful there are actually two horror movies out there called little monsters this is the one where they are i believe taking a field trip in a zoo yes that's the one Torgo, what year was that in? What year was the release date? The Australian movie Little Monsters was released in 2019. Okay, good. That's the one to look for. Shall we find other categories now? Well, I was going to say when we're talking about uh, ones that have kind of a humor element to it, you know, I've always appreciated Dead and Breakfast. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. One of my favorite ones also was the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. I actually saw that one with my mom. (laughs) We enjoyed that one. It was funny. You got vampires and cheerleaders and Pee Wee Herman. What can go wrong? (laughs) I'd like to bring it back away from the comedies to talk about ones that are legitimate horror and not quite so much comedy. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got I got one more I want to get out of my system first. Sleigh bells. Oh. Oh no, Mr. Redgraves, our first big spoiler. And you both were doing so well. All right, listeners, if you don't want to have the plot of this movie spoiled, cover your ears for the next 20 seconds. 
You remember Sleigh Bells where the yep. three girls who are urban explorers break into the abandoned Santa theme park and find out that Barry Bostwick, who's the motorcycle riding drifter that lives there, is the actual Santa Claus. And he's got to save them all from Krampus. Yeah, that was not scary. It was just very, very silly. Very, very silly, but it had good creature effects. And that one did have blood. So if what you're thinking is maybe you don't want the tension, but you don't mind the gore, eh, maybe sleigh bells for you. In a similar vein to Velocipaster. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That one not scary at all. Another thing that might not be so horrific, and it kind of blurs the lines between your horror movies as opposed to a thriller. Sometimes they lump a lot of thrillers into the horror category, such as Dead Again, the one with Emma Thompson and... Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth Branagh, yes. That one... It can be a horror movie just because of the premise and the tension set up with that one, but it's more like a thriller. Like some people say Silence of the Lambs is a horror movie. Oh, I think of that way more as a thriller. Yeah. Sometimes some horror movies do get categorized into being a horror movie just because of the way that it's filmed, the, the tension that is brought out, maybe some kind of monstrous event or even actual monsters in the movie. Mm -hmm. If you like a movie, and we had spoken about this film recently, it does have a lot of monsters, a lot of demons, but it was a mainstream movie. And if you like your horror action, Constantine with Keanu Reeves is something that someone who doesn't like horror movies could probably watch. Some of the demons are a little bit horrific. If you don't like that whole skeleton, zombie-ish, demon type movie, I would probably avoid it. But it's got some good action and a solid movie. So what about when you're talking about ones that are kind of verging into the uh, thriller territory? D the Changeling. Oh, yeah. George C. Scott, wasn't it? George C. In Scott. I was trying to remember what his name was. Yeah. About a uh, man who moves into a house and he believes it to be haunted and there's a beautiful tension, but it's really all, at its core more of a mystery than anything else. Yes. Yeah, it's it's not very overtly scary, but it has it has all the right ingredients for horror. Mm -hmm. It very much encompasses a gothic horror story where you don't really see the ghost but you feel its presence and that's what builds attention in that movie good solid movie too like that one another one would be the woman in black there might be some frightening ghost scenes oh, of, yeah. of some of them that pop up at you but that one is a movie where you've got very much a period piece it sets up an atmosphere not too tremendously scary one of daniel radcliffe's first movies breaking out of the harry potter mold oh and he did do a marvelous performance in that that was quite good quite good let me bring out then uh, one that we more recently watched because it was relatively light on the jump scares and not dangerously foreboding, though it was definitely shot with a horror eye. A Ghost Waits. Oh, yeah. That one was a neat spin on a haunting. 
nothing terrifyingly scary. It almost like what you had talked about with the only lovers left alive, where it's more of an interpersonal relationship movie, but it just has a supernatural element to it. And the ghost in it does have scary moments. The ghosts, plural, I should say. They do have very legitimate scary moments. Mm -hmm. It's interestingly filmed, shot in black and white for reasons I'm still uncertain of, but it works. However, that one does need to have a warning applied to it that it deals with some themes that may be inappropriate for viewers that... There might be some triggers. Yeah, there may be some triggers. It deals with themes of suicide that could be uncomfortable for certain viewers. But aside from that is actually a fairly good, not overly scary, but still all the right notes of scare. Yeah. One of the reasons why people like going to horror movies is that they have fun getting scared. A franchise that I have always enjoyed was the Happy Death Day franchise. Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. There are some moments where mm. it is kind of serial killer tension, but it's not overtly gory and very well written. So I would recommend those also. Yeah, those are quite good. With the director, M. Night Shyamalan, he's done a few that are horror movies, but they're not super scary. His first one, The Sixth Sense, not really too scary. There are a handful of jump scares, though, that I must warn you. But it is a mystery to be solved. But there are a few scary scenes in that one. But it's not anything that someone who is mildly okay with scares could watch. Mm -hmm. The same thing with Old, one of his newer movies. I think Old is definitely, I would say, his second best film. Obviously, The Sixth Sense is Shyamalan's best film. It will probably yeah. always be his best film. Right. But I really did think Old achieved what it was setting out to achieve very adeptly. But I kind of worry that his reputation is so tarnished now that it's hard for people to really give him a fair shake anymore. Because, of yeah. course, there's a twist. There's always a twist with Shyamalan, but old, frankly, the, the twist is kind of there from the beginning. It shouldn't yeah. surprise anybody when it happens. It's really, I think, his best effort at like getting away from being the caricature of himself right. that some of his other work has kind of become. Mm -hmm. Another one that's fairly new also is one that we have recently seen, which is Nope. There wasn't anything too terribly scary with that one it was almost a creature feature type movie i like the way that jordan peele tries not to pigeonhole himself into a particular kind of movie where i think that's where Shyamalan, everyone was looking for oh look for the clues so you can figure out what's going on here and then i'm going to give you that o henry ending or that sting of an ending mm -hmm. i don't really see that much in peele's movies Peel's movies are all very different films, yes. Yeah, his recent one would be something that you could go see. Nope does contain some somewhat graphic depictions of an animal attack. It's actually right up front at the beginning of the film. The worst you're going to see in Nope is actually in the pre-credits sequence. So it's important to the plot, though. It actually is. 
oh man, we're gonna have to sit down and like really talk about Nope, and we're gonna have to do it soon because I, I got a burning desire to talk about Nope. I actually was a little bit flummoxed that I talked to some other people and they said, well, it's good, but it's not as good as us or it's it's not as good as Get Out. And the funny part is, well, it was you, me, and Torgo. I thought Nope was the best film. And I think you said your favorite was Get Out. And Torgo thought Us was the best film. So all three of us liked a different Jordan Peele film the best. But I personally, I don't know. Maybe it's because different themes resonate differently with different people. Mm-hmm. I connected the most with Nope. And maybe that's because, like the protagonists, I can relate to looking at the situation and going, Nope, 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 <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, a couple of movies I want to talk about, and this is an older movie, one that has, I believe it was Demi Moore in this one. It was called The Seventh Sign, where you get all of the signs of the apocalypse and figure out the end of days. There isn't anything too horrific with it. It's more of a situational type movie where the people try to solve the mystery and how to stop Armageddon from happening. That one's a pretty good one. Another one that we haven't talked about yet are the Wicker Man movies. Now, none of them are that scary unless you talk about the remake with the bees. But that wasn't that scary. Not the bees! Either the original Wicker Man movie or the remake one, those are definitely movies that someone who's not into horror movies can watch. Indeed. And the Wicker Man is a culturally important film. It's one of the most well-researched films that was ever made. Definitely the director could be accused and possibly convicted of attempted documentary because he did so much research. Like yeah. there's extended scenes of traditional folk songs in The Wicker Man because he turned those up in his research. He's like, oh, here's a traditional folk song. I have to use it in my film. <laughs> Yeah, there's not a lot of gore in The Wicker Man, although I think The Wicker Man has a lot of tension. I guess tension is kind of the thing we're looking for in horror, and so I am loath yeah. to tell people that it's too tense, but The Wicker Man's pretty tense. I know some of my friends who do watch horror movies and some of the more mainstream ones. If it does get too tense, they'll turn it off. Maybe go do something, maybe watch something else, and then come back to it. That way they can cleanse their palate and not get that overabundance of terror in their system. I think that if a movie is too scary for you, turn it off and come back to it. That might help relieve your tensions in watching horror movies. Truth. Oh, 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 oh. I have no segue for this. But it did occur to me, we didn't talk about The Burbs. I've never seen that one. The Burbs with Tom Hanks. No, you've not seen that? Oh my, oh my. Okay, 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 okay. So The Burbs is about a creepy family that moves into the house on the very buttoned-up, white picket fence, HOA-style neighborhood in the early 90s. And... The busybody neighbors, who are kind of de facto led by Tom Hanks's character, are convinced that those guys in that house, they are up to something. That family is doing something weird, and they're going to get to the bottom of it. 
And so it becomes a little bit of like a rear window kind of situation where they're staking out and they're watching the family and they're compiling all this evidence. I mean, look, they only come out to take out the garbage and and then they drive away in in this old beat up station wagon that blows black smoke the whole time it's driving. and, And what is their deal? And they end up eventually breaking into the house to find evidence and then there's the great tension of, well, now they're going to get caught in the house, which, again, is a, a direct lift from Rear Window and all the subsequent parodies thereof. Marvelously done. And oh, the best part is how it ends and it resonates so perfectly with modern audiences. Because in the end, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't spoil because you haven't seen it. Because I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to let I you know what? I'm going to stop there, but you, my friend, need to watch it so that we can talk about it for the rest of these folks because the ending is just oh god, the the ending is like it was a perfect ending of its day, and it's one of those things where the intervening 30 years have put a whole different spin on it that makes it actually even darker. Like, it was intended to be lighthearted, and it read that way at the time, but now it's actually pretty friggin' dark. Wow. It's Tom Hanks in a not-overtly-heroic role, which, when have you ever seen that? Yeah. Hanks don't play no villains. He don't play no villains, but he is the agitator in this story. When you were talking about a family moving into a suburban white picket fence neighborhood, I, was saying, I think I've seen that one. It's called The Adams Family. Ooh, which is getting a new adaptation. Is it because the monsters have a new adaptation as well? Uh, you know, these things do tend to like travel in packs. That's just right. the way Hollywood works. Just as long as they don't redo Edward Scissorhands. I'm just saying. Oh, I think Johnny Depp could still play it. Oh, I think he totally could still play it. Except this time, the lead actress would be played by Helena Bonham Carter for some reason. (laughs) (sighs) I love her, but Tim, you got to cast some other actors, man. There's more than two actors in the world. I love you, man, but there's more than two actors. No, 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 (laughs) getting back to it, though. Actually, the new adaptation for Adam's Family looks really good. Louise Guzman is actually like the perfect Gomez I would have never thought of. Because if you look at him next to the comic strip art that of the Adams family from which the films and the television show before that and the animated series were derived from, of all the actors to have played Gomez, he looks the most like the way the artist conceived of Gomez. Nice. So fight me on it or die angry. I don't care. I think <laughs> I think he's going to be a great Gomez. The internet doesn't like it, and like I said, I've decided I'll die upon this hill. Unless he's bad in the role somehow. He's got large shoes to fill after Raul Julia. Man, yeah. Uh, Raul left some big, big shoes. Some big boots and a big cape. You know, But for him, it was Tuesday. <laughs> I made him watch Street Fighter. Street Fighter the movie. Raul Julia's last role. It's a film. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually a fantastic performance from Raul Julia yeah. and a bizarre and worthwhile performance from Jean-Claude Van Damme. Interesting performances from everybody in a film that had no business being made. Just one day Hollywood had too much cocaine and someone said <laughs> this movie needs to happen. 
<laughs> Speaking of which, that makes me wonder how some of these other movies, which I am going to list here shortly, which would probably make our list as well as not too terrifying movies. It makes me wonder how the movie Tammy and the T-Rex was made. There was probably a lot of cocaine or something going on with that one. And here's another one. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Not really scary, but still mildly entertaining. And the last one, the last one I'm going to mention is Manos Hand of Fate. Manos I like. So those are your low-budget horror movies that makes you wonder, wow, how were these ever made? Some of them are interesting. Some of them are not as good. I did enjoy Manos, even though a lot of people badmouthed it a lot. Surprisingly, it was not bad. Manos is not bad. It stands well enough on its own, and Lord knows there have been worse movies made. The direction in Manos is a little weird. Lead actor, on point. Also, costume designer, should have won an award. I mean, that's a little bit of a travesty, because I don't think Manos, although I like it, shouldn't walk away with any awards. But the costume design in it is really, really good. That handprint robe. Yeah. It makes you wonder when you have movies like that where you have just one element of production, perhaps a costume designer, perhaps the set designer, and they go, man, I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this, and none of you guys came up to my level. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is why audiences should also check out One Cut of the Dead. Oh, yes. Which is all about the passion that goes into making a film. Yeah, but for this episode, that might be a bit horrific for the non-horror movie fans. It's got some zombie stuff. I do have to jump back to answer the question of how did Tammy and the T-Rex get made? The answer is shockingly simple. There was a guy who was an importer, exporter, and he had possession of an animatronic T-Rex for a weekend. And he felt the need to do something with it while he had it. So let's go make a movie. Yeah. Hey, you know what? No one can ever say that he didn't make the most of what he had at his disposal. That's true. That's what makes a good filmmaker. That's what makes your starving artists, your starving filmmakers make a name for themselves. Let's pretty much make a purse out of a sow's ear, right? Make the most of what little resources that you have. Oh, yeah. Oh, indeed, indeed. Well, like, and you also mentioned Plan 9 from Outer Space. Ed Wood, the director, was a man who wanted nothing more than to make film. He was kind of his day's Quentin Tarantino. He had a great respect for the filmmakers that preceded him. He wanted to be part of that tradition, and he wanted to make the kind of movies that he enjoyed for a new audience. To wit, he ended up becoming very good friends with Bela Lugosi of Dracula fame, who was by that point in his career long out of work and cast aside by Hollywood. Lugosi appears in Plan 9. It's not a great role for him, but by accounts of people who knew the two men, Lugosi was thrilled to be working again at the time. So that's something. And actually, Plan 9... I almost don't want to say this because it discourages people from watching it, but the opening line of the film, you you remember the opening line, we are all interested in the future, for it is where we are going to spend the rest of our lives. It's kind of a thinky film. It's got some deep thoughts. 
take that for what you will. There's a little bit of wannabe Rod Serling in Plan 9. <laughs> Talk about Rod Serling. Would you consider the Twilight Zone to be appropriate for people who are interested in horror, but not ready for some of the more intense things? Well, the movie and some of the episodes, most of the episodes for the TV series, I think would be lumped more in the science fiction category. And I think that's what introduced me to a lot of horror. There were a few episodes of The Twilight Zone and Outer Limits that were more horror-based. And just because I watched those programs for the science fiction aspect... Every once in a while, they'd sneak a horror genre episode in there, which I would watch. I very fondly remember The Outer Limits. Maybe that's what desensitized me to horror in the first place by getting used to watching some of them more horrific episodes. Quite possibly. The Outer Limits had some really good ones. That was my jam once upon a time. There are some that could be a little bit too intense, like the one about the guys who are on a spaceship and they're attacked by these creatures that can, like, alter your perceptions. Then they, like, wake up and that's like a bad dream and they're actually still on Earth, but the plot leaves it ambiguous, which is the reality. Are they people on Earth having bad dreams or are they people on a spaceship being mind-controlled to not fight off the alien creatures? Boy, that, okay. that, those are deep thoughts you don't need right before bed. Let me tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> They'll give you nightmares. Well, why do they always put the horror movies on right before bedtime? Jeez, it's almost like they're asking for it. Yeah. Vivarium, that's, that's one that is a very interesting type of unsettling. Yeah. Vivarium is about a young married couple that are looking to buy a home, and they get contacted by a deeply unsettling realtor who takes them to a subdivision of absolutely identical houses and shows them number eight. This isn't a starter home. It's a forever home. And after the realtor introduces them to the place, he vanishes and they are stuck and they cannot escape. They can drive until the car runs out of gas, but they're always right back in front of number eight. Every time they stop moving. It's almost like a two-hour Twilight Zone episode. Oh, yeah. It very much is. And interestingly, it evokes themes of a creepypasta that has suddenly surged to immense popularity lately called The Back Rooms. This one might be new to you. It was new to me until uh, just a couple of days ago. The way the internet legend goes, you know how in video games, if you like walk your character in just the right angle and direction, you can clip through the solid objects in the game and be like outside of the world map. Supposedly, the legend is that you can do that in real life and you wind up in the back rooms, which is a endless, randomly generated labyrinth of nondescript yellow wallpapered rooms with shag carpet that smells faintly of mold. It's an interesting concept, but to me, it's really just like, it's House of Leaves with the lights on. (laughs) But you know what? House of Leaves came out almost 20 years ago. There's a whole generation of kids that don't know about the old classics. Vivarium hits a similar note because it is unsettling in its uniformity, its constancy, its inescapableness. And, uh, oh yeah, compounded by the fact that they have to raise a child that is definitely not human. And that's their only hope for escape in Vivarium. I would say that that's a horror for the timid, 
But I'm not sure who the audience for Vivarium actually is. Yeah. Because everyone finds it deeply unsettling. Most people are going to walk away from it going, what was that? Yeah. I appreciated what they were trying to do. And even I wasn't like, <sighs> it was still a slog for me. It's not a bad film. I think maybe the very nature of the concept they're trying to explore is just one that is anathema to the concept of human enjoyment. (laughs) 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 Which, what could be more horror than the very antithesis of joy and pleasure? (laughs) That's true. That is true. Well, we've given our listeners quite a bit of a selection of movies. So if you are interested in watching any of these movies, oh, you people out there who are not into horror movies, go back to the beginning of our discussion, get a piece of paper, write down some of these, and check them out. You never know. We might turn you into a horror fan. One of us. One of us. Google gobble. Google gobble. Uh, <laughs> and, and for those of you who are into horror, you can take that list and maybe uh, use that for family gatherings with your family members who don't like your taste in films. Maybe now you'll have found the way to sneak past their resistance to horror. Right. Good luck. So from all of us at the Hellraiser Handlebar, always remember to stay on the road. And stay off the moors. If you liked our show, please remember to like, rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. Telling a friend is the best thing you can do to help us out. Good night, everybody. podcast was made possible by listeners like you. This episode was written, voiced, produced, and broadcast by Bradford Fleener and Robert Uy. If you like horror podcasts, please visit our friends at Shriek Previews at your favorite podcast stations. Cassandra was played by Gwen Bertaki, and Torgo was played by Paul McDermott. Thank you for listening. You can find more on our Facebook page. Search for The Hell Razor, R-A-Z-O-R, Handle Bar. Intro and outro music was Steampunk by Boo Wakanja. Podcast copyright 2022 by Bradford Fleener and Robert Uy. All rights reserved.